setting out on the 20th of October with 13 dogs pulling each sledge. The southern party made good progress until heavily crevassed ground forced a slower pace. At one point, Bjarland and his sledge disappearing into an icy moor as the snow bridge hiding the crevasse fell away beneath them, the whole rig being saved only by the weight and traction of the dogs at the lip. They reached the first depot on the 24th of October. They restocked the sledges and gave the dogs as much seal meat as they could eat. This was also the site of the first death among the dogs. One of Hansen's team, Bone, wasn't keeping up with the pace. Bone received a bullet and a burial at the depot, where he could later serve as dog food for the journey back to Framheim. The next day they spotted a snow cairn built during the depot-laying journey the previous April. That it remained intact and visible after the winter blizzards encouraged the team to lay similar cairns regularly to guide the return journey in poor weather. Where the British laid single cairns along their line of travel, the Norwegians took the time to lay strings of them perpendicular to their course, mirroring the arrangement of flags marking each depot. Each cairn contained a note giving its position relative to their outward track and the bearing and distance to the next can in the string. This allowed greater scope to get back on track if poor conditions or flawed navigation led the team off course on their return. A Norwegian variation on the usual sledging biscuit made up the bulk of the food intake between camps, but Amundsen eschewed tea and coffee while away from winter quarters considering them an undesirable stimulant in the harsh conditions. With the dogs in good fettle, light sledges and experienced skiers setting the pace, the Norwegians regularly cracked 20-mile hauls in under five hours of sledging, leaving plenty of time for can building, cooking up the evening meal and getting some rest. Unlike their British counterparts on the western margin of the barrier, the Norwegians, although working hard, were not putting their bodies under the huge pressures incurred by man-hauling. In early November, the party went off course during a dense fog and found themselves in crevassed territory they named the Steer's Head. Twelve miles of slow sledging across narrow crevasses, with many falls but no major injuries, ensued before they returned to their predetermined path. On the 4th of November, they reached the 82-degree depot, taking two days to rest up and gorge themselves under sunny skies. The men were hearty and the dogs were pulling well. Everyone felt confident about their chances of reaching the pole. On the 11th of November, mountains that Amundsen named the Queen Maud Range came into view. The barrier surface became increasingly difficult as they drew near the mountains. Large, undulating waveforms slowed progress and gave Amundsen plenty of time to fret about how they were to reach the polar plateau. Sometimes the sledges were hauled up an incline by incorporating all the dogs into one hauling team, and at other times the men had to wind rope around the sledge runners to retard a descent down the subsequent decline. Amundsen named features of the Queen Maud range after friends, companions and donors. Mount Fritjof Nansen, Mount Ruth Gade, Betty's Knoll, after a girlfriend, and Mount Don Pedro Christofferson, 
after the Norwegian expat benefactor in Buenos Aires, whose promise to bunker and victual the ship stood as one of the biggest contributions any Norwegian made to the expedition. At 85 degrees south, Amundsen decided to carry 60 days worth of food up the most promising looking glacier, which he named the Axel Heiberg, after a Norwegian industrialist who forked out a large sum of kroners as one of the expedition donors. The ascent began on the 17th of November. They made good progress in the first day, but slowed after that. All up, taking four days to cover 44 miles and a three kilometre increase in altitude. This, of course, compares favourably with repeated British experiences on the Beardmore Glacier. Where Amundsen had dogs to do the hard work, the route he selected also turned out to be less steep and crevasse-threaded than those available to the west. As they ascended, they thought they could see land beyond the Queen Maud range. Naming this Carmen Land, it stood as the first evidence that Antarctica was a single landmass and not divided into two separate bodies. During the ascent, Bjarland broke his oath of loyalty, questioning an instruction from Amundsen. The leader, already notably Beatty when contradicted, and at this point suffering the sledge's malady, hemorrhoids, see episode 41, lost his shit and ordered his subordinate to head back to Framheim. Bjarland begged on his knees to be allowed to continue, and Amundsen relented, to the relief of all involved, but in particular Bjarland, who didn't want to undergo marginalisation, as per Johansson, and Hassel, who would have been sent back with Bjarland, as the navigator, who would stand as the difference between the order constituting a punishment and a death sentence. They killed 23 of the dogs, using them, in addition to supplementing the evening hoosh for the humans, to fuel the remaining 18 dogs, selected as being the strongest sledge pullers. They stayed at this camp, which they named the Butcher's Shop, for four days as a blizzard prevented their moving on. But with the food clock ticking, they couldn't wait for clear weather indefinitely and eventually headed off into rotten conditions, hauling into strong winds and blown snow. After a further ten days, they reached the Polar Plateau, an area so stitched with crevasses that their path had to zigzag all over the map saw the region named the Devil's Ballroom, and it was only as they headed into this landscape from my worst cheese-induced nightmares that someone noticed that they must have left the crampons back at the butcher's shop. Amundsen decided to push on. Crossing the polished ice without good traction saw many crevasse falls, but everyone got through alive, somehow and the surface became more forgiving as they transitioned from the tortured ice forming the lip of the Axel Heiberg Glacier and onto the Polar Plateau proper, though the high altitude and low temperatures took their toll on men and dogs, as each breath provided less oxygen and drew out more moisture and heat than at lower altitudes. Antarctica can part you on a warm day near the coast, but add to the dry air the problems associated with altitude sickness, and you can understand Amundsen's team experiencing extreme thirst in their exertions, and not even a strengthening coffee in the offing. Some people praise Amundsen as the consummate professional explorer of his era, 
but the no coffee thing stands in my eyes as the first and last evidence I need to know I could never travel with a man cut to his pattern. On the 8th of December, morale received a boost as the Norwegians passed Shackleton's furthest south, 88 degrees, 23 minutes, the moment bringing Amundsen to tears. They laid a depot and began their final dash to their goal. The increasingly hungry dogs were becoming increasingly ferocious, their handlers becoming wary of dealing with their growing aggression as the heavy locomotive burden placed on the animals wore them down. Already, the dogs had demonstrated their willingness to steal food from one another, to fight to the death, and to kill and eat puppies if given the opportunity. Every scrap of leather needed guarding against their cunning will to eat anything remotely edible, and as the journey wore on, no one felt confident that they wouldn't try human flesh if given a chance. In spite of the large meals served them, they ate their own excrement and gnawed on the sledges. Everyone experienced frostbites and felt apprehension at how far off the map their path took them. But Amundsen experienced an additional tension as he counted down the miles left to run. Would they find evidence of British precedence at the pole? Already cheated of the profits that should have come his way after the Gower voyage, and beaten to the North Pole before he even set off, any sign of Scott's party as they neared their objective could dash the scope this expedition held to give him the prestige and funds he wanted his exploratory efforts to garner. On the 14th of December, the sledge meters indicated they must be close to the position, calculated by dead reckoning, of the South Geographic Pole. At 3pm, a halt was called. The five men planted the Norwegian flag together, and Amundsen spoke. So we plant you, dear flag, on the South Pole, and give the plain on which it lies the name King Harkon VII's Plateau. This overlapped with Shackleton's naming of the plateau after King Edward VII, and the nomenclature would form the basis of a dispute over cartography and ownership between Norway and England, but that's down the line a ways. They erected a tent which they named Polheim, celebrating within its canvas walls that night with the little seal meat as a treat. They camped for three days while astronomical sightings were made around the clock, and members of the team skied in all directions to ensure they'd boxed the pole, leaving flags to mark their furthest extent in each direction. Even if the instruments and sightings couldn't guarantee they'd stood on the exact spot, they felt confident they'd skied over it at some point. No one would be able to say they hadn't been there, or at least not without a degree of pedantry that wouldn't arise until the internet age. On the 17th, they killed six of the dogs to act as food for the remaining twelve, and departed north, leaving a letter to Scott, another to King Harkon, and some surplus equipment in the Polheim tent. The return leg of their journey is usually recounted briefly and with very little detail. Privations and risks, equivalent to those of the outward-bound leg, seeming to disappear from the narrative. But the homeward effort was not without problems, many of them caused by Amundsen's fussy, bossy, mercurial nature. Hustle's journal recounted being reprimanded in the nastiest and haughtiest manner possible for snoring, 
which would have been fair enough if it was a conscious act, but it's not. Hustle also noted that Amundsen seemed to actively seek out arguments in which he could exercise his authority and biting rhetoric, blowing up at Helmar Hansen over a comment that the subordinate thought one of the dogs stank, where Amundsen did not. At this point, Hassel questioned his leader's sanity. But yeah, I get pretty cranky with the hemorrhoids too. Still, heading downhill on increasingly light sledges and with the wind at their backs, the Norwegians travelled quickly, reaching the barrier on the 6th of January and Framheim on the 25th. Where Shackleton barely made it back to Ross Island on the food he took south with him, and five of Scott's party died for want of supplies on the barrier, the Norwegians returned to their winter quarters with 11 dogs and slightly fatter than when they departed. They even had enough food left on their two remaining sledges that they could carry it north as souvenirs. Food that's been to the pole and back. The Fram, sighted by Prestrud the day before the polar party returned, but driven out to sea by pack ice and adverse winds, moored up in the Bay of Wales on the 26th of February, and busy days of hectic packing and sledging the most valuable equipment to the ship ensued. Landstrom cleaned the hut, a common sentimental impulse among people departing a hut they've wintered in. The Norwegians, on Amundsen's insistence, didn't acknowledge that Framheim lay on floating ice and therefore didn't realise this was the last time anyone would see the hut. But likely the same notion would have struck Landstrom, even had he known the absoluteness of the fruitlessness of his efforts. The Fram departed the Bay of Wales on the 30th of January, Framheim remaining on the barrier and now likely somewhere on the seafloor of the Southern Ocean, after carving from the barrier edge as the Ross Ice Shelf continues its progress north in berg form. No one aboard the ship that day ever returned to Antarctica. Amundsen spent the return voyage writing accounts of different aspects of the expedition to have ready-made copy available for feature articles once the exclusives went out to fulfil the deals made by Leon with the Daily Chronicle and the New York Times. Captain Nilsson provided assistance with the English translations. It took the Fram a month to carry the anxious Amundsen north to Hobart. On the 7th of March, 1912, the Fram dropped anchor in Hobart and Amundsen, once people worked out who he actually was, found himself mobbed by journalists eager for the scoop. Mindful of the lessons of the Gyor, Amundsen didn't give anything away and cabled news to Leon Amundsen and King Harkon and Fritjof Nansen using the pre-arranged codes. The story went to the Daily Chronicle in Britain and to the New York Times in North America. Without anything to report, reporters left out of the loop made shit up and the range of allegations arising from Amundsen's return to civilization varied wildly depending on which newspaper you read. The official news was published on the 7th of March. With the news out, Amundsen found himself in hot demand as a speaker and for interviews. While in Hobart, Amundsen donated 21 dogs to Douglas Mawson's preparations for an Australian Antarctic foray, though the 11 celebrity dogs that returned from the pole and the most recent litters of puppies stayed with the Fram. Hjalmar Johansson, ostracised and dispirited, was dismissed by Amundsen, 
paid off and told to make his own way home. Amundsen never gave Johansson any credit for any good thing on the expedition, let alone his dramatic saving of Prestrud's life on the barrier. Acknowledging his bravery and tenacity in that instance would also require acknowledging his abandoning them in his scramble to get back to Framheim. Instead of sailing on to San Francisco to make preparations for the northern drift, as promised to Nansen, the Fram headed to Buenos Aires on the 20th of March. Amundsen stayed on in Australia, kicking off a lecture tour and catching up with his crew in Buenos Aires by steamer. There, Peter Christofferson hosted his countrymen proudly, paying for another refit to the ship and organising banquets and meetings with Argentine dignitaries to honour their achievement. Amundsen appreciated Christofferson's unstinting support, but felt hurt that equivalent enthusiasm never arose in the Norwegian government, learning only then that orders to return to Christiania with the Fram were drafted by the parliament, but never sent, because no one could work out how to get them to a ship nearing Antarctica. Amundsen's decision to reject radio technology serving him well there. Amundsen stayed on in Christofferson's care while his crew sailed home to Norway on commercial vessels. Hansen, Landstrom and Fisting had agreed to sail north with Amundsen aboard the Fram, but with lecture and literary agents urging Amundsen to take advantage of his celebrity while he could, he concentrated on finishing his book and lining up speaking engagements. Amundsen also suspected something unfortunate may have happened to Scott's polar party, and knew that, if that was the case, he only had until the end of the next austral summer to capitalise on his success before his competitor's failure would erode the gilding currently making his achievements so shiny. The Northern Drift would have to wait until 1913. Amundsen's storytelling style, geared to always highlight his preparedness and professionalism and to minimise his shortcomings, left his audiences underwhelmed. Where Nansen, Shackleton and even the publicity-shy Scott could fascinate audiences with recountings of tribulations and challenges overcome, Amundsen never let slip that a mistake, a crevasse, or a prolapsed rectal blood vessel ever put a crimp in his day. By his account, everything went swimmingly because he was well prepared against every contingency. True, he was the man to look to for exacting preparation and competence, but his version of events glossed over a lot of divisions and risks that might have required a slight realignment in his brand, but which also might have made his story one worth a listen. As it was, the public quickly tired of the Norwegians and their competence. Amundsen could still turn good coin lecturing, but the public hunger for entertainment in the form of recounting of polar exploits, his in particular, was waning. Also overshadowing Amundsen's moment in the sun, was the sinking of the RMS Titanic on the night spanning the 14th and 15th of April, 1912. Gazumping news of Scott's death by the better part of a year, the loss of life, the dramatic nature of the tragedy, and the sinking of an allegedly unsinkable ship on its maiden voyage, gave the newspapers more drama than could be safely fit on even the broadest of broadsheets. Even if you combine the showmanship of Shackleton with the wordsmithery of Apsley Cherry Garrard, and set this Frankenstein's carnival bark at a task running public relations for Amundsen's exploits, 
they couldn't hope to make much headway against the world's biggest ship, hitting an iceberg and taking so many people, many of them rich and famous, to the bottom of the Atlantic with it. Coming to cinemas this summer, James Cameron's blockbuster, Fram, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Roald Amundsen. Nope. Hollywood knows a compelling narrative when it sees one, and Amundsen's story and self-serving editing out of any drama within his story just couldn't compete with the loss of the Titanic. Anders Beers Vils saw the lack of interest in the Norwegian expedition as proportional to the quality of the images Amundsen returned with. Eschewing the equipment Vils provided, Amundsen mostly documented his voyage with a simpler Kodak unit, and instead of applying the theory Vils taught about exposures, apertures and developing, Amundsen bracketed his images, taking multiple pictures of the same scene with various settings, hoping that one might turn out well. This meant the few good images arising from the voyage weren't very good, and their publication throughout the subsequent years is more a matter of necessity than it is of a desire to include the best images from a broad catalogue, as is the case with the work of Herbert Ponting and Frank Hurley. Vils figured at the time that the dearth of high-quality images cost Amundsen several thousand kroner. The photograph most often associated with the Norwegian polar journey is that of the Norwegians at the Pole, looking at their new nation's new flag, flying above Polheim, and that came from the camera of Olaf Bjarland. Sir Clements Markham castigated Amundsen as a gadfly who played a dirty trick on his golden child, treating the claim on the Pole as provisional, contingent on confirmation by Scott on his return, which of course never happened. Scott Kelty took the claim at face value, as did Fritjof Nansen, who celebrated that now the stupid Poles had been attained, people might concentrate on getting some solid science done. Kelty invited Amundsen to lecture to the Royal Geographical Society, but criticism of the expedition in the British press, and in particular a report arising from the new RGS president, Lord Curzon, put Amundsen on the defensive. It took several assurances from Kelty that the Norwegian would be well received in London to placate him. The lecture went ahead, but Lord Curzon brought proceedings to a close by proposing three cheers for the expedition's dogs. Amundsen took this as a public insult, and this event marked a turning point in his relationship with Britain as a whole. Amundsen finding himself far better disposed to Americans than to the British for the rest of his life. Amundsen's memoir of the expedition, The South Pole, told the story with a minimum of drama, the prose being as dry as the title, and incidents and accidents being glossed over or edited out, what with Amundsen always wanting to be perceived as the consummate professional, and considering adventures as an indication of poor planning or execution in a voyage. This made the account of a success dull to read when compared with the contemporary accounts of exploratory failures. Amundsen paints himself as generous and easygoing, as you do when you're writing about yourself or making a podcast wherein you pretend you're in a hut on the sea. Wait, did I think that or say it? No, you're getting toasty. Anywho, Heinemann Press' initial enthusiasm to publish the book fell away when William Heinemann read some of the early interviews Amundsen made immediately after reaching Hobart. The book did go to press, and the English-language version sold moderately well, 
in part because it included appendices of scientific data, which European scientists immediately put to use in trying to draw a more complete picture of Antarctic weather and oceanography. With the arrival of news of Scott's death, the wind went out of the sails of Amundsen's PR campaign altogether, and newspapers wouldn't feature any polar story that didn't involve Scott's demise. Scott's backers, as always led by the blusterous Sir Clements Markham, accused Amundsen of a deceit that led to their great man's death. They contended that had Amundsen not cramped Scott's work arena and set up what amounted to a race to the pole, the great man and his compatriots might still be alive. As we know from our ice coffee coverage of Scott's foray, the pressure of Amundsen's presence and competence did play a part in pushing Scott's hand, but there were so many factors contributing to the many points of failure that led to the death of the British Polar Party that to single out Amundsen as holding sole responsibility for killing them is one of the longest bows anyone has drawn in this account of Antarctic history to date. Dr Frederick Cook didn't help buttress public perceptions of Amundsen. Already suspected of falsehoods in his claims on the North Pole because the distances he claimed to have made didn't seem feasible, and the lack of a sledge meter by which to measure such distances, and thereby by which to make any dead reckoning measure of their position, by which to make corrections using a sextant, were shredding his credibility in the face of Peary's more compelling claims, which would also come to show some fairly difficult to rationalise problems of their own. But anywho, in his memoir, Cook claimed he actually encouraged Amundsen to make a race of it when they met in Copenhagen, shortly after Cook's return from the Arctic. Cook asserted he used the financial offers he received from newspapers as the leverage by which he convinced Amundsen he should not only alter his plans to head south, but that he should also show his hand, thereby increasing the excitement on which the newspapers would sell their units to a public clamouring to know about the outcome of the exciting competition between men and nations. In the immediate wake of Amundsen's return to Europe, Cook sought out opportunities to make public appearances with his friend and former shipmate. Amundsen, aware of the credibility troubles Cook was experiencing in his dispute with Peary over who's on first, didn't want to be drawn into an argument that might dent his own credibility in the public eye. Prior to the Antarctic expedition, Amundsen was quick to back Cook against Peary based on his personal regard for Cook's qualities, but now, it seemed, Cook was on his way down the gurgler and Amundsen, while not throwing him under the bus, didn't lift a finger to prevent anyone else doing so. British churlishness about Amundsen's purported role in Scott's death, Shackleton's assertion that the Norwegian had no right to name a region he was second to reach, and the overall sense that Scott's death gave the British a greater claim over the South Pole than he could ever make, caused Amundsen enough umbrage that he rescinded his membership of the Royal Geographical Society and branded Britain a nation of sore losers. Amundsen, touring North America to fulfil a 200-geek lecture contract, grew fractious at the Norwegian government's unwillingness to come through with the funds promised prior to the expedition. Unable to pay his crew their well-earned wages, Amundsen claimed he was unable to commence planning for the mooted northern exploration, which Nansen, eager to hold Amundsen to their original agreement regarding the use of the Fram, still advocated. Nansen, initially astonished at Amundsen's front in taking his ship on the basis of bald-faced lies that nixed his own ambitions in the South, later advocated on Amundsen's behalf 
that he'd willingly given up his ambitions to give Norway the best opportunity to both achieve a geographic first in the south and to reap the scientific rewards of subsequent work in the north. Some of his correspondence with Amundsen in the years after the Antarctic voyage carries an admonitory tone and almost reads as if Nansen considered the Arctic work a penance Amundsen must perform to make things right between them. Nansen wrote, I, with a bleeding heart, gave up the plan that I for so long prepared, and which should have filled my life to the advantage of your trip, because I regarded this as the most important thing to do, and by right, Norway would contribute the most. You were younger and had this great life work in front of you, whereby you could contribute something considerable, as I could seek other tasks. Yes, that was how it was. But what it still cost me to cut off what I had planned for so long and become attached to. Many regards, and I wish you soon through with this exhausting lecture life. Yours sincerely, Fritjof Nansen. In a letter to Nansen in April 1913, Amundsen, understanding that the Norwegian government were on the cusp of fulfilling their promise to him and his crew, agreed that he would turn his full attention to the northern expedition on his return to Norway. Nansen began drawing up schedules of scientific observations he wanted made, and lobbied for funds and equipment in the first steps to bring an expedition together. But by the time Amundsen finished his contracted engagements, it was too late for anyone to head to sea. In 1914, the First World War kicked off. German submarines only targeted naval vessels in the first year of hostilities, but by 1915, the blockade of maritime trade to Germany, considered by Germans an attempt to starve the population into submission, led to a policy of unrestricted submarine warfare, and any foreign vessel was considered a viable target. The Northern Expedition would have to wait. While the popular historical legacy of the expedition remains the attainment of the South Geographic Pole, the greatest geographic discovery of Amundsen's expedition was the existence of Carmen Land, sighted but not confirmed. Scientific data from the expedition, while unique, was of questionable quality and uncertainty over Amundsen's unit conversions gave many scientific bodies qualms about integrating it into a bigger picture of environmental processes at work at the southern end of the globe. While science and geographic exploration played a major part in getting the expedition the credibility and support it needed, Amundsen was, in hindsight, only concerned with getting to the pole. You could bend iron bars over the man's ambition, and because people aren't made of iron, anyone who got between Amundsen and his goals might find themselves very badly bent indeed. As did all members of the Fram's crew, Hjalmar Johansson received King Harkon's specially instituted South Polar Medal in 1912, but he returned to heavy drinking and fell into a deep depression. On the 3rd of January 1913, he walked to Solly Park in Christiania and shot himself. In 1997, Biographer Ragnar Kavam published The Third Man, rehabilitating Johansson's reputation from the tarnish given it by Amundsen's white ant campaign against him and carefully edited version of history. In 2005, a seamount north of Spitsbergen 
was named after him by an oceanographer with a soft spot for an underdog. A note on dates. As happened to the fictional Phineas Fogg and Magellan's non-fiction crews, the crossing of the international dateline got by Amundsen, leading to erroneous dates in expedition logs and diaries. I've tried to stick to dates that accord to time as the rest of the world understood it. If any date recorded in this episode about the Norwegian expedition are out by a day, I'll put it down to some of my documents working from the Norwegian sources, and others from dates amended after the error was identified and amended, and me missing the disjunct. Sorry about that. I doubt anything important hinges on it, but there you go. You may have noticed that I was pretty late getting a May episode out. This is because I spent part of April and much of May in Michigan, helping provide palliative care for my brother-in-law, Patrick. I already gave Patrick praise at the end of an episode of Ice Coffee. He gave me a lot of support and encouragement in this project. When I met the woman who would later ask me to date and then marry her, she told me a lot of stories that featured her big brother, and I clocked that he must be a big deal in her life. When we started dating, I travelled to the USA to meet her family, and seeing her interact with Patrick, I realised he was her model of a good man, and that I should pay some heed to that, because I wanted our relationship to work. Getting to know him through correspondence and visits, I saw how much his example shaped who my wife grew up to be and that the same things I love about her also shone in this whip-smart, super-funny, and endlessly patient man. So Patrick was an easy man for me to love. Cancer deaths are never good, and watching Patrick lose his fight at the age of 51 stands as one of the most heart-rending periods in my life. But I'm grateful to have played a part in making his death as dignified, as free of pain, and as full of love as the circumstances allowed. The large numbers of his former workmates, former students, friends and family who flocked to Ann Arbor to express their appreciation for him in his final days gave me some indication of how many other people are carrying around a Patrick-shaped hole in their lives now. To be held in such high regard by an entire community is something rare and wonderful. Take care and appreciate your coffee.